Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Red Bluff author Rick Barham is a retired history and theater arts teacher. His first book was The 72nd New York Infantry in the Civil War, A History and Roster. Rick Barham now is editor of a second book about the American Civil War, Dear Uncles. The story is taken from letters by a soldier to family and friends in a small town in upstate New York, including correspondence written for his uncle's local newspaper. Rick Barham, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, your book uh, is so interesting, but not everybody's, nobody probably has heard of this guy. So how did you get the idea to write a, or edit a book of his letters? You're right. Nobody's ever heard of him. I used this collection of letters in my first book. That's how I became aware of it. And I was very much aware that this would make, his letters were so fascinating. They make a good book on their own. And, but I didn't have a picture of him. I thought a book without a picture would be kind of tough. And so as it turned out, a few years later, Another collection of his writings, this time to his mother, appear, was donated to uh, Mississippi State University, and it included a picture. So once I discovered that, I said, aha, here I have. Not only do I just have the letters that he wrote to the newspaper, but now these uh, additional to his mother, and then with the picture, and that's where, where it came from. So you had to integrate uh, the letters to his uncles to the newspaper and the letters to his mother, because they weren't all stored in the same place. No, they weren't. The, the, the uncles were stored at a museum and library in New York, in Fredonia, New York. The letters to the mom were in Mississippi. The, what was nice about the letters to the uncles, they were already printed out for the newspaper. The Mississippi letters, the mom letters, were all in his handwriting, so that took a lot, little bit to figure out his handwriting, his use of French phrases, and all these things that I was not <laughs> necessarily familiar with. Well, you reproduce for us some photographs of his handwriting, of his letters, so we can appreciate what you were up against, yes. having to figure out, now, what was this word? Mm -hmm. So you've got the letters to his uncles, who were uh, who had a newspaper, right? his two uncles, and you've got letters to his mother's, and you wanted to... Uh, tell this story chronologically. Mm -hmm. Right. So I put it together chronologically. Um, some of the letters were dated the, the same. The letters to his uncles usually lagged about seven or eight days after he wrote them before they appeared. So there was a little bit of juggling there. And then as the story progressed, as his he's telling the story, the, the uncle letters are generally more military. This is what the regiment did. This is what the company did. He's, he's reflecting about the mm, 400 or so men that came from uh, Chautauqua County, where he was from. But the letters to his mom are much more personal. They're talking about, I had to send my watch to the watchmaker to get fixed, or uh, please send me some boots because the shoes that they have provided here are not worth anything in, on a hard march or whatever the case may be. So, yeah. My guest is uh, Red Bluff author Rick Barham, and his title of his most recent book, Dear Uncles, The Civil War Letters of Arthur McKinstry, A Soldier in the Excelsior Brigade. So you tell us in the title who wrote these letters, Arthur McKinstry, mm -hmm. and who was Arthur McKinstry? Arthur was a young man, came from, uh, his family came from Chicopee, Massachusetts. They were one of like the founding families of Chicopee. As father died when he was young, mother remarried, and then they moved to Chautauqua County, I think probably because the, the uncles were there. there were, that was the draw. When he was 15, he was smart enough and educated enough to be able to get an appointment to Annapolis, to the Naval Academy. But unfortunately, <laughs> that didn't last. I'm laughing because I, I was reading this story and thinking, oh, here's this sharp kid. He's so smart. And he gets in the Naval Academy and he's going to succeed. And I was shocked. Yes. 
<laughs> we were, when, he, when we first found out he had only been at the Naval Academy for a year, we're scratching our heads, well, what went on? And then when I got some letters from the family, supplemental to this, that he had f flunked out, it wasn't the letters. <laughs> Actually, I got the, the pages from the Naval Academy, sent me the sheets, you know, showing how lousy his grades were. I think he's kind of a smart aleck because I think some of the times that he writes his mother, in my opinion, they're, they're kind of whiny a little <laughs> bit. And the mom says in, in a letter to him, perhaps the professor took your pranking for insolence. Well, I've taught 15-year-old kids, <laughs> and, you know, you get too much pranking, and that is insolence. <laughs> you know, so I did see that, you know, he had accumulated all these demerits and just was a problem. When he leaves the Naval Academy, there's a, there's a period of time there where he has gone to Mexico and he spent time in New Orleans. What he does there, it's not quite clear. But when he does come back, we know that he's been sick you know, pretty well. He's lost some weight and that sort of thing. And when, he, when the war comes and he signs up, he's probably not 100% because he does talk about in letters to his mother. He says, I'm, this is the best I've felt. I'm adding weight, the, um, you know, the, this, uh, this effect. And Well, I was surprised, too, that uh, he traveled to Mexico. That's a long way to travel from where he grew up. And I was wondering if it had anything to do with the fact that a lot of uh, the Civil War uh, uh, generals and so forth had been in the Mexican War. And so I thought, do you think that... Was it the lure? I no. don't think he had any connection with the military or anything at that point. I don't mm -hmm. know if he was just bumming around or whatever. What he did, it's uncertain. And so. My guest is Rick Barham, and he says he's the editor, <laughs> as opposed to author, of this book, Dear Uncles, The Civil War Letters of Arthur McKinstry, A Soldier in the Excelsior Brigade. So we've been talking about these letters, and— uh, this I I, went, I almost called him a kid, a 21-year-old now. He's volunteers. He goes in the army. And why don't you um, <laughs> uh, read us a little bit of where he talks about his comrades in arms? My goodness, he says this is he's in Staten Island now. By the way, you tell us he's written this letter from Staten Island, and uh, <laughs> he refers to his fellow comrades. This is um, about page 25. They're the dregs of humanity. They're outrageously filthy. <laughs> exactly. Well, he has a very high opinion of his own people from his end of the county, and he, for good right, for a good reason. We're talking about the other people in the regiment who've come from New York City. And part of the deal was they have given up, they've traded prison terms to be in the Army. And so this is... Um, what he uh, is talking about. We're talking about here at Our Boys. <laughs> Our Boys, the Jamestown Boys, and a few co companies occupy the northern part of the ground, and the rest occupy Lord only knows who. They are the very dregs of humanity and are raked up from the points and other places of similar repute. Some are coatless, more hatless, and not a few have blankets gird around them to cover their deficiencies of pantaloons. All are outrageously filthy, but as no object in nature is without its use, so they furnish an inexhaustible fund of merriment. More especially, one of them is drummed out of out with a shaven pole to the tune of the rogue's march for some precious piece of rascality. This is Rick Barham, and he's Red Bluff author, and he's reading from his book entitled Dear Uncles. Now, one thing that caught my attention was when he said, we have not yet received our minis. And at the end of these letters, there are a lot of phrases that we, what, what's he talking about here? And you explain these things to us as notes at the end. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was caught, that caught my eye was that my dad grew up very close to the huge battlefield Shiloh. And when he was growing up, they could walk around. There were belt buckles and mini balls all over the ground. So I learned the term mini ball when I was just a kid. Yeah. But this uh, apparently... Well, you tell us what mini. Well, what he's referring when he's to. referring to minis is, like you said, the mini ball, which uh, fit in a rifled musket, 
the earlier muskets would have been smooth bores, which have just taken a round ball and then have very limited range and a little bit limited accuracy. The mini ball was to fit in a rifled musket. What he's when he talks about the minis, he's just referring to the rifle, you know, in that regard. And that would have been a highly prized, uh, more so than the the smooth bore. Yeah, so I, I learned that. In yeah. your, I, well, I learned a lot, but uh, that was an example. Now, there's a scene that is kind of funny, <laughs> and that is, this is uh, Camp Caldwell, and this is August. Now, so he, he uh, becomes a volunteer. It's June of 1861, and then in August, this uh, letter, August the 26th of 1861, and what do these kids, I still think they're kids, because in this scene they sound like kids to me, and what do they do? Well, they're in camp, and they decide that they're just going to, what has he refers to, raise Ned, okay? And Ned is like... Uh, There's another expression that we wouldn't have ever heard of, I don't yeah. think, and you have to explain to us Right, what it is raising raise the devil. I spent a lot of time on, uh, you know, up on Google looking up <laughs> these phrases. So... Um, a few days, uh, let me skip ahead. Uh, well, all was quiet and the temptation growing stronger and stronger. I shoved my ha head out from under the canvas and opened a concert with a lusty crow. Directly, crows began to caw, cows to bellow, calves, sheep, and lambs to bleat, while all continued to alternately as a suckling lamb and a stout old chanteleer, while moon followed as the old sheep varying the entertainment by playing upon the jackass. In three minutes, the whole camp was in perfect uproar of domestic beasts and fowls as we lay shaking our, shaking our sides in number seven, but keeping as whilst as a mice that the officers might not find out whence it all originated. Every beast you see and hear on a farm from a horse or ox down to a chipmunk were heard as natural as life. <laughs> These are the words of a Civil War soldier named Arthur McKinstry, and they're being read by the editor of this collection of letters, Rick Barham. Now, um, for the, these letters are written by Arthur McKinstry, but there are a few exceptions. Yes. And these letters are published in his uncle's newspaper in Fredonia, New York. But uh, the next uh, letter that I want to ask you about is written by somebody named H.B. Taylor. And mm -hmm. this you've called, or, or these are called Other Voices. And so uh, this is another voice. It's not uh, Arthur McKinstry. And this is on page 109. And what happened there? Okay, well, let me explain. So to kind of keep the flow of the story going, we've included other letters that appeared also in the Fredonia Censor. Yeah, we're skipping ahead because yes, right. I'd love for you to read all the letters. Right, but. Yes, <laughs> right, I get it. Okay, but other other people contributed as well. Um, this has to do with their high opinion of themselves. <laughs> and when they get to Lower Maryland is where they're being stationed, uh, what they see. We passed through the village of Piscataway, and I must say I never saw it its equal in any northern states. In appearance, it would indicate that it was built sometime during the Revolution. The roofs of the houses are covered with moss, and the whole village presents a decayed appearance. Two-thirds of the houses a northern farmer would not allow to disgrace his farm. So this is a letter not written by Arthur McKinstry, but um, one thing that I noticed toward the end of that, he says um, that rations are poor, and there are not enough of them. This is on the next page of this letter that's produced. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I wondered. He says, our rations are poor and not enough of them. We have pilot bread and paving stones, as the boys call them, hickory beef, tea, and coffee. And so I just wonder, how did they get supplied? I mean, with, with clothes and, and food. Mm -hmm. And um, I suspected that the food was... Was, uh, well, these were army rations, so you know yeah. the um, they were stationed along the Potomac River on the Maryland side of the Potomac River, so they had pretty good access to being supplied by the Navy and, and supply ships coming down there. But something that I was surprised in reading this is if the rations were short 
and the men spent their own money by buying from the locals, they would be reimbursed. I had never heard that in all my years of studying the Civil War and doing uh, Civil War reenacting. I had never heard this idea of somehow they could run this tab if their if their rations were short and be reimbursed for that. Well, now, because when in season, he mentioned one time melons and things that were in season. And I thought, oh, good for them. They got some good food. So that might have been an example. If they bought all mm-hmm. these local uh, vegetables and fruits, then they would get reimbursed for them. Yes, That's- but they also would, the local farmers, he also mentions the local farmers would rather pour their milk out on the ground rather than sell it to them for, you know, like a dime a gallon or yeah. whatever the going uh, rate was. But it's also interesting when you start reading some of these letters to his mother, the stuff he's asking her to send, uh. like butter. Like, really? You're going to put, like, <laughs> butter in the, in the mail? So that was fascinating. Now, you just mentioned something in passing that I didn't introduce you. When I introduced you, I didn't mention that you are a Civil War reenactor. I am, yes, yes. And so we've been doing that in Red Bluff for about, mm, going on 25 years now. And this is how we came across McKinstry's letters and the other book, because the unit that we portray is the 72nd New York. I might mention to listeners that you have on a shirt with this um, 72nd Regiment New York and underneath, and then you have this uh, an eagle and you have this emblem on it. So do you wear this when you, uh, probably not, when you're doing your reenacting? No, (laughs) this is when I'm doing my public speaking or that sort of thing or so. So uh, how many people uh, would get together to reenact some battle, I'm guessing? Here in California, the numbers that we have are not big enough to take, do an actual battle. So it's kind of a generic skirmish, shall we, <laughs> shall we say. So we'll often have a 100 or so at our events. And um, our club puts on one up in Red Bluff the last weekend of April. So everybody come out to <laughs> see it at Cone Grove Park. And, near and they Red might want Bluff. to read your book first so uh, they could be truer to the reality. Absolutely. Um, or if you come out there, you can get a book signed by me. <laughs> and no promotion there. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so we were just mentioning um, the food. And um, you have a, a section, and this is uh, a little further on, of course, in your book. This is on page 125. Uh, when you say that Chautauqua people would do well to find out whether their friends are uh, shirts and drawers, which are not fit to be worn. Uh, you want to read just a little bit of that section? Okay. The weather here is milder than at Camp Caldwell, but it is pretty cold, and the Chautauqua people would do well to find out whether their friends are supplied with flannel underclothes, for we need something better than the government shirts and drawers, which are not not fit to be worn, and which are not at all comfortable. They are made of cotton and wool, I mean dog's hair, and are very harsh. The government socks are a very poor thing, and the shoes, however good for summer, are not at all suited for the deep mud we must pass through whenever we move. Every man ought to have a pair of stout calf boots reaching about to the knee. We have each a pair of thin blankets. One good wide blanket with a good nap is worth a dozen of them and that is all that we can very well carry. The postman here, the postman is here, and I must close. We live mostly on hard bread and coffee, but as the bakery is now set up, we expect soon to have our own workman's bread. Sometimes we get enough to eat. Sometimes we don't. This is a retired uh, teacher, Red Bluff teacher, Rick Barham. Uh, He taught uh, history and theater arts. And he's reading from Dear Uncles, the Civil War Letters of Arthur McKinstry, a Soldier in the Excelsior Brigade. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Rick Barham, and he is a Civil War reenactor who has put together a book of letters from a soldier in the Civil War. So we're leading up now to November. Okay. And November is when Thanksgiving mm-hmm. occurs. So you have a section um, there at Camp Wool, and uh, the, he wrote this letter on December the 3rd. It was published December 11th in his uncle's um, newspaper. So he addressed this to his uncles, and this is about Thanksgiving dinner. He does a wonderful job of, exp- of telling you exactly uh, what the food situation is. And now I suppose you would like to know how we spent Thanksgiving. Well, I know where the facilities were and, and speedily arranged it with the machine shop boys whose superb clay stove has already proved its capability of baking beans and hence came to a conclusion it would bake turkey too. The turkey was secured and stuffed with oysters and old loose baked it to a beautiful brown. A mighty pot of pork and beans was also sent upon the board, and Chautauqua butter formed also part of our bill of fare. Fricasseed chicken was there, and toast as well, and a very nice dessert was provided, but the later proved a fizzle, for the attraction of the turkey exhausted our powers in the Epicurean line. These are the words of Civil War soldier Arthur McKinstry. He was a soldier in a brigade from upstate New York. So we get to see what they had for Thanksgiving dinner. And then uh, you have a section, and so you wonder, well, does how, what does he feel about the reason he is fighting? What are his feelings about this? Mm-hmm. And so many times you just wish I could talk to this guy in person. But we get to hear his side of it. So um, you want to read the section when he's at Camp Wool, and he writes a letter to his uncles in dated December 9th. Okay. Well, let me, before I start that, um, so he was pretty, you know, a hardcore Republican, and his uncles ran the a Whig newspaper, even though the— W-H-I-G. Um, yes, W-H-I-G. And so he was definitely a Lincoln man, you know, coming into this. And this shows, I think, this passage shows a very good um, explanation of what a lot of Union men uh, thought about the work because they were not like hardcore abolitionists. I really think from from the present appearance of things that this war will eventually prove the death blow of slavery. When I entered upon this campaign, I was a non-intervention man as regarded with existing institutions of, of states, and still am a, as regards the rights of loyal citizens, though then as now utterly opposed to the further extension of slavery. But, uh, but I do not see why the old world system of confiscating the property of those who are found in arms against their lawful rulers should not be followed by our government, as well as that of all the principal civilized nations of earth, I do not see why we should give, the, give to the rebels and to traitors a security which is denied to loyal citizens of seceded states, and yet more. I wonder that they who are giving freely of their treasure and their blood for the restoration of the Union should seek to perpetuate the cause of disruption. But the older, older order of things is fast passing away. And the southern planter with his smiling family of domestics around him, over whom he exercises so mild and benevolent a sway, and who would go through fire and water for their beloved master. This picture, so charming in the perspective, upon nearer approach, fades away into a dirty-looking farmer in a coarse suit of clothes of Andalivian cut, and a ragged parcel of chattels who look eagerly to us for one ray of hope for their delivery from their present thraldom. It was indeed painful on our scouting expedition to Marlborough to turn back the eager slaves who hailed us as their expected deliverers and entreated that they might follow us back to camp. All volunteered whatever information they had had possession of, and undoubtedly many of their backs smarted in consequence. Here I know it is a fact 
that the planters forbid their slaves from visiting us for fear that their disloyal sentiments and acts may be, may be disclosed. We have now several hundred thousand young men who have just come upon the stage of active life, who see things now in their true light, and who hear, who will hereafter, in all political conflicts between slavery and freedom, refer to their own fresh memories rather than political tracts or ingeniously got up speeches for the knowledge of the true relationship between master and slave and between the results of slave and free labor. And yet they have seen only the fairest page of the book. The difference between the slaves in Washington and those here is not nearly as widely marked as between those here and in the extreme South. Time, however, presses, and I must close. These are the words of Civil War soldier Arthur McKinstry, and uh, this being read by Rick Barham, who edits these letters in a book, Dear Uncles. Now, this is also an example of the level of his English proficiency. I mean, how many college graduates these days would write at this level? Exactly. Um, so, I mean, words like, we might use a word like antediluvian, but if people were having to listen to this, they had to listen carefully to see what 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 are his sentiments? What is he saying? So what what did you get from this part, this letter that he wrote? So he starts uh, the uh, the Union soldier, well, the most of the North, for by and large, did not care about the existence, come or go of of slavery. But when the state, southern states started to secede, that's when there was something worth them fighting for. And he, he lays that out. You know, he was a non-interventionist man. But when he gets there, when he gets to Washington, D.C., and then on to lower Maryland, he sees slavery for what it is. And I love the way that he describes ab about the picture of the happy slave owners with his servants all around him, because this is an image that he would have read of in magazines and Harper's Weekly. There was these uh, ongoing serials that he would have been reading. And this was the, the image that was portrayed very much, uh, you know, gone with the wind type of imagery. But when he gets there, he sees it's not that case at all. It's just raggedy and terrible. And he also makes a mention in another passage that the the owners, the whites, they don't do any work because for them to do work is to lower themselves to the level of the slave. And so everything is just terrible and miserable in, in Maryland, here in lower Maryland. So, Which is where our soldier is yeah. now. Yeah. Now, at the end of that letter, there's a note. Uh, and part of it is his handwriting was difficult to read. So uh, there's some misspelled words <laughs> because I was delighted that they used a French expression that you can ask a Frenchman today about you can use this expression. And people say, oh, yeah, I mean, it's used today. Mm -hmm. Mais revenons à nos moutons is let's get you're getting off the subject. Let's get back to our sheep because this was taken from a play where they were trying to have a case. The judge was trying to keep people on the lawyer on track about the sheep. So uh, this was an example, because uh, I looked at the way these <laughs> words were written, an example of trying to read his handwriting mm -hmm. and, uh, and even know what the heck is he saying. <laughs> yeah. But he can throw in this French expression. Uh, again, his level of education is impressive. Yeah, very impressive. And what's, what's uh, interesting that he would, he would use these expressions in his writing, he would make these references, but yet... He, f he flunks out of Annapolis <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> mainly because of math. He talks about yes. uh, all these things. He asks his mother to send him a <laughs> book so he can study German in camp and do all these things. But math, you've you got to really be able to concentrate to do math. So I'm not going to do math here in the field. I'll do math when I get home. But he recognized that his time at flunking out of Annapolis was a lost opportunity. So yeah. he, he's yeah. always quite aware of that. Now, there's something that um, I just wanted to say right on, brother, because um, I interviewed a championship debater. And uh, in this story, he was saying that um, 
when our uh, legislators debate, they are often just at loggerheads. But Barry Goldwater once, he even proposed a bill himself, and then he listened to the other side when the debate came up, and he voted against his own proposed bill because he listened to the other in a debate. So I was excited to read these kids, kids, these young soldiers mm-hmm. had a debating club. Yeah. Now again, this is where to ease away the, the boredom. There's they're sitting in their camp here in Charles County, Maryland. And what are we going to do to to break up the time? What are we going to do to advance ourselves? These are the these boys from Western New York. Um, these were not the dregs of society like the the New Yorkers. <laughs> these were the kind of the cream of the crop. These are people who were already enrolled in the militia program out there and had good uh, support from home, you know, with the, the ladies sewing their uniforms and that sort of thing. Well, one thing people might say, well, if they're bored, why don't they just get drunk? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That was not allowed. Yeah, no, not allowed, particularly in this particular regiment. The The colonel who ran, ran this regiment was very strict on, on that. And then the officers followed suit. Some of the other other regiments within the brigade, not so much. And there and there was a, a couple of references that he makes, uh, that Arthur makes, where the local citizens are complaining about the carryings on of the soldiers in the area, whether they're drunk, they're rustling cattle, so to speak, or they're tearing down fences for their fires, or whatever the case may be. But our regiment was not included in the list of, you know, uh, complaints. So he was very proud about that. Well, let's hear about the debating club. Okay. This is on page 194. Okay. As for our amusements, dominoes, chess, checkers, and cards helped the day to drag their slow length along and the newspapers, books, and uh, books, visiting club meeting, beguile, away the evening hours. We have an association here in Company D, which is the recent, of recent origin, and which bears temporarily the title of Pioneer Debating Club. Matters of general, but not immediate and exciting interest, are topics of discussion. We have, of course, little authority at command besides our own memories, yet the interchange of thought and the constant calling up of data of general interest cannot prove otherwise than instructive. The strictest rules of parliamentary debate are enforced, and owing to the exclusion of politics and other subjects that are likely to awaken latent prejudice, the most marked courtesy and absence of personality prevails. At the close of each meeting, the chairman appoints his successor, and only permanent officers is is that of secretary, which the position is filled by Gilbert Lewis of Forestville. Which, by the way, is where Arthur was born. Yes. That's a, no, that's where he lives. He's born lived, in yes. Massachusetts. Yes, yes, yes. Or, excuse or, me. Yes, where he's from. He's from when he signed up as a volunteer for Forestville. Forest, yes. The last two questions were, is military service necessarily demoralizing and resolved that the pulpit exercises a greater influence than the press? Our next is resolved that man is the architect of his own fortunes, and I expect that some petty keen or pretty keen argument upon it. Disputants are chosen without regard to their individual preferences, and I have known the contestants to take up a train of argument and follow it so keenly as to cause a material change in their own opinions as well as those of others. This is Arthur McKinstry, um, his words. And uh, I, I found that, oh, I'd like to hear those debates. Resolved that man is the architect of his own fortunes. Resolved that the pulpit exercises a greater influence than the press. Wow. These are pretty heady yeah. topics for 18, 19, 20 And they didn't know which side they would be arguing when they, right. were, when they go up to the debate. Yeah. They could be not agree quite with what they've got to present. It's strictly an intellectual exercise. It's great. Yeah. My guest is Rick Barham, and this is his second book. He is a Civil War reenactor, and his research led him to these letters of a soldier named Arthur McKinstry from upstate New York. And the title of the book is Dear Uncles, 
because he addressed many of his letters to his uncles who had a newspaper, the Fredonia Censor. And we're reading his book, and he's just 21 years old when he's writing these stories. Mm-hmm. And we know that, I mean, he's going to die at some point. We just don't know how. Right. Well, let me turn that over to you. <laughs> okay. So so they've been stationed in Maryland for a number of months, and uh, the situation, the tactical situation changes, and they camp up, they pack up, and they go to what will be called, uh, come to know as the, the Peninsula Campaign. And they have laid siege to Yorktown. They have been digging trenches. They're trading pot shots with the enemy. And just as George McClellan is getting ready for the big push to take Yorktown, the rebels evacuate. And there's a, and they go 12 miles up the peninsula to the outskirts of Williamsburg. The Excelsior Brigade and the 72nd and Arthur, they all pursue. They engage in a very large battle and there Arthur and a number of the the men who were in that tent doing the the barnyard noises are killed. And these um, men that we met earlier when they were doing the animal sounds. Yes. Yes. Were also killed. And yeah. so how did um, what happened to Arthur? Well, there is some dispute as far as exactly how he was killed, where he was shot. Um, a, a friend or an acquaintance from the home county who's in a different regiment describes it one way. His officer in a letter to his mother describes it another way. He's buried in temporary grave near Williamsburg, but then later on he's exhumed and moved to uh, what will be a, a national cemetery at, at Yorktown there. Um, and that's that's pretty much it. His his uh, belongings are collected up. They're sent to his uncles. Some of these uh, letters, his last letter is published in the newspaper, you know, uh, after his death, basically, because it uh, uh, it appears at the, the same time as the, the casualty notices uh, appear. There's a letter that he was working on that doesn't get published that's you know just not finished finished. and that describes the day before the big battle when they're laying in the trenches and cannonballs and bullets are flying overhead and they're trying to they're hunkered down in this trench and they're trying to carry on just as well as they can and they're you know reading whatever scrap a little book or newspaper that they have and even trying to play a little card game while this is all going on. So one of the overriding themes, I think, of, of his life and his, his service is he believes fully in the cause of the Union. He cannot see how the South could possibly with, you know, hold up against the, the weight of the Union. He believes that it's the duty of the people that, like him to put an end to this, and once we clean up this mess, we can go back to being farmers or whatever the case may be. Um, and he just is, he goes in it with a, this extremely positive, almost, it's like beyond naive, I don't know, naive is the word, or positive, or, or well, what? And I might add, he's only 22. He yeah. started this when he was 21. Yeah. He's he dies at age 22. Now, there's something you say in your epilogue. You say there are millions of Americans who are descended from someone who soldiered in the Civil War. Me, I, my great-grandfather fought in the Civil War for the Union, okay. and yours, I'm assuming, yes. also fought for the Union. Mm-hmm. So I've been just informally asking friends, did you have an ancestor who fought in the Civil War? So I think your book would be of particular interest to these millions of Americans that you mentioned. So I'm going to extend that challenge for your for listeners that uh, maybe you'd be inspired to do what Rick has done. Yeah. Thank you, Rick, for writing this book. Okay. Well, thank you, Nancy.
My guest has been Rick Barham, and his book is Dear Uncles, The Civil War Letters of Arthur McKinstry, a Soldier in the Excelsior Brigade. After a break, I'll be talking to local historian Michelle Shover, who has put together a book about the Chapmans, and their stories begin in 1861 also. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. I'm talking to Michelle Shower, who has written a book, Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861 to 1899. And when I moved to Chico a long time ago, there was this part of Chico that was called Chapman Town. Who was Chapman? Chapman was Augustus or Gus Chapman. He was a Michigan man born in 1827. Uh, He came to Chico with his wife and small child. She was Sarah, the child was Fred, in 1861. He grew up in uh, Michigan where he uh, became, his father died when he was quite young. So he was alone with his mother. Um, and they had a farm, but they couldn't keep it until he married, she married. And um, then he died. So his mother struggled with this farm, and uh, Gus tried, did what he could to help her, of course. But she recognized that he was very, very smart. And uh, she could tell by how he thrived when she sent him to school. So she tried hard to minimize what he did on the farm, took a lot of labor on herself uh, to allow him to be in school. And he, he just blossomed in school. He loved to read, and um, he was a thinker, and he, and he always was looking for ways to do better. And so um, there was a school that opened called the Raisin Valley School, which was um, um, uh, it offered, excuse me, it offered opportunities for children to come to the school if they would work to help compensate the school for their uh, expenses. And so he did that, and at the school he was kind of taken under the wing of the head um, who gave him work to do, but paid a lot of attention to him and developed him further. So then he went on to college, actually. Um, In college, he... Uh, again, did very well. In those days, hardly anybody finished college. They took just as much as they basically could afford, and then they had to break off, and and he did that as well. Only seven out of 300 of the students there finished their degrees, is what I'm saying. He uh, first uh, went to work um, in a store, as I believe, and then he decided to become a lawyer. Uh, there was a big influx of settling in Michigan, so there was a lot of land disputes going on. And so he did that. He, I have a little ledger where he writes what clothes he ordered, silk shirts and nice clothing for his lawyer, her new, his new lawyer job. He did that for quite a while, but the lawyers uh, had a hard time because a lot of these people moving west were very unreliable. 
So they were very likely to enter into quarrels over land and then just disappear. So he found it very aggravating. And so he went into business with a, a man back there and became a partner in a store. So that was the merchandise background that he had that helped him get the job as the uh, chief clerk or manager of John Bidwell and Company when he arrived in Chico. He didn't work directly with Bidwell at all. Bidwell came in the store from now and then, but the store was run by Bidwell's full partner, George Wood. And so he was very helpful to Bidwell, however, as a lawyer in writing up forms and things of that kind. Well, uh, Michelle, the dates of the years on, in the title of your book is 1861 to 1899. So 1861 is when his wife when he and came. they and came here, yeah. the two the Chapmans and their little toddler. And then 1899 was the year that Gus Chapman died. And I thought it was somewhat ironic. Her maiden name, Sarah's maiden name, was Sickly, and she outlived all the other members of her family. Yes, she, and she certainly outlived him. She didn't die until 1823. I just thought it was too comp. I mean, 1923. I just thought it was too complicated in making a title to make all these distinctions, oh, so, sure. so that's why. Well, is there anything else you, that we should know about Gus Chapman before we adjourn for today? Well, I hope, you, I hope readers find him someone they can care about and find admirable, but also understand that he was a flawed individual like the rest of us, but that he, he always tried to make good for his... Uh, for, uh, any disappointments he caused. <laughs> and I want to thank you for allowing us to have this conversation in your home, which was also the home of Gus and Sarah Chapman. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you very much. Again, the title of Michelle's newest book is Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861 to 1899. I would also like to thank my first guest, local historian Rick Barham, whose book is a collection of letters written during the Civil War by a soldier to his uncles. The title of the book is Dear Uncles. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Burning the Leaves. I loved burning the leaves, at least as much as I loved the first green buds. On the morning, I finally found spring. Not as a groundhog searching for shadows, startled and spinning into green, into umber, into thalo, crimson metamorphosis, a riot of dappled leaves daring to fall. And I loved that fall as a kaleidoscope angled toward the sun, or collage plastered on asphalt, especially after rain. Some crackly I'd wade through, or kick at and crunch, burying myself once, deep in their death, unafraid, lit, to a red glow, raging into ember, into ash. Jerry Mahood. This is called Whether We Dance or Not. My heart is the shape of a club foot, but it wears a jester's hat leaping because it loves the elevation, but landing with an inelegant thump because it reckons any patch of ground is a potential grave. Life is not so sweet that it makes me diabetic, not so sinister that I scan the horizon for assassins. I laugh because I recognize the many punchlines of my cosmic predicament. I weep because God tells jokes with the panache of a terrorist lobbing a grenade. So I dive skyward, asking the air to accept my folly, trusting my limbs to launch me into the next moment, caring not if I tumble, because failure means my wings are in need of repair, and getting up means I still hunger for grace. This is Robert Chancy. Looking back, I realize that we're in a battle throughout our life. I am a gambler wild. I will take risks non-parel. I fight the long night. My weapon was my youth, 
The sweet lips I have tasted, but no more. Their memories cherish. I fight the long night. Draped in cloth, dreary and torn, I see my enemy forlorn, standing in a field, beckoning me. One last battle to be won. The battle lines are drawn. I fight the long night. The battle begins, but my shields of invincibility dead. The years of my youth gone. Yet I cannot see my fallibility, though the mirror shows my traitorous body. But I fight the long night. I remember the sweetness of youthful play, no longer attained by the worn, abused body. The roses of my youth have faded. Another spring, other roses, but not for me. My roses are ash in my hands, yet I fight the long night. I remember the sweetness of youthful play, no longer attained by this worn-out, abused body, but I fight the long night. My enemy stands beckoning me. In his field were beautiful flowers that are different. My friend beckons me to play in his field. I have lost the fight. Good night. George Perry. Passion. Passion goes to die at the feet of the uncertain lover. Passion goes to die where the seagulls nip at the fins of yesterday's fish. Passion goes to die amid the tired soil underneath the farmer's fingernails. Passion goes to die in the empty rocking chair that idles on the porch where conversation fades. Passion comes to be at the risk tucked beneath a lover's arm. Passion comes to be amid the mossy green tone of the autumn lichen. Passion comes to be where the butterfly dances across the dew-ridden iris. Passion comes to be in the room of possibilities where every box is empty, waiting to be filled. Megan Irene. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org. Dot org.